freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. Thanks to Tom Morello, artist, activist, troubadour for Let Freedom Ring, our chosen anthem, and for jolting us awake again and again and giving us courage for the work ahead. You may remember the humorous yet quite serious slogan Woody Guthrie had scrawled on his guitar, This Machine Kills Fascists. It's become iconic, but Woody didn't invent the phrase. He borrowed it from industrial workers who were scratching onto lathes and other material bound for the war zone. This machine kills fascists. I saw Tom Morello in concert last year, and in the grand tradition, he'd taped in large letters on the front of his acoustic guitar, Arm the Homeless. Amen. Humorous. Serious. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Aleem, Light Ali, and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide. And we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. And we're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you, wherever you are, to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and search for spaces that could be or should be, but are not yet. We tune into first and fundamental questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? This episode and the next one were recorded in July 2021. And as most of you know, we lost our beautiful comrade Malik Aleem in a terrible accident last August and suspended the podcast. Now we're continuing the seminar and I'll be joining the team. My name's Jordan Allen and I'll be working on the pod with Bill and Lighty. In order to remember Malik and his essential role in the creation of Under the Tree, you'll hear his voice pop up here and there throughout the season. Another piece to note, which will be referenced at the end of this episode, is that David Gilbert came home in November after 40 years and 10 days in a New York State cage. Miss you, Malik. Welcome home, David. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today we have two poems. The first is Names by Liesl Muller. A few names tell it all, the whole incredible history of one generation, mine. Names that we cannot manage with a drum roll like Waterloo, nor pitch to the eloquence of tragic Gettysburg. Hiroshima sticks in our throats. We choke on the bones of Buchenwald, spit out the stones of Berlin. Who says Vietnam burns his tongue? And Mississippi, oh Mississippi, scrubs out our mouths till we cry mercy. A second poem is the widely read and cited Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, 
Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you two could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. Latin phrase is from the Roman poet Horace, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. And that is the old lie. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar and the nowhere of utopia. This is your time to put words on the page without second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Write five names that tell the story of war and plunder for this generation. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to friends and comrades who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we are in the clock of the universe, about what freedom really means, and about what is to be done, or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most liberated imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but also how our community, our city, and our world might be otherwise, and how we might take the steps to make it so. I'm super excited today to be joined in conversation with Timmy Chow, an organizer, lawyer, activist, and a facilitator based in Chicago. His work challenges all forms of militarism, policing, and imprisonment. He's co-director of the Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project and co-founder of The Centers, a new national youth-led anti-war organization. Timmy, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for that warm introduction. I feel like I've coerced you into being here, but uh, but is that is that true or not true? I feel like no, 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 no. I put the lean on you pretty strongly a couple of times. I'm sorry. I I always, I always feel guilty. Like I don't want to take up your space. You got shit to do. Like organize an anti-war movement, right? Talking to me is kind of is kind of like I don't know what a distraction or it's icing on the cake. What are no, the other? it's more so like a 
I can't believe it. Does he actually want to interview? Is he just being nice? Oh, come on, dude. I mean, I've known Timmy for a couple of years and we met, um, you could say when you think we met, but I think we met at Barbara Ransby's house. I could be wrong. Um, and Timmy was an essential part of a group of young organizers, uh, Black Lives Matter, all kinds of progressive issues, but very much focused on Black Lives Matter, looking at the world through a queer feminist um, black lens and, and trying to see the world that way rather than to see the world with all the received wisdom of empire and colony and so on. So I think we met there and we've known each other for a while. We do some work together, for example, in the Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project, which we'll, we'll get to. But is that your memory of us meeting? Did we meet back at Barbara's house once upon a time? I think so. Ah, so I think so. But, you know, I had been trying to, I had been looking to connect with you for a, for a while before that. And I had actually heard about, I mean, I've, I've, I've always looked up to the work that you and Bernadine and others, you know, uh, have, have done and read about y'all. And, and then somebody, Monica Trinidad, in conversation uh, yes. was like, hey, well, you know, they hit them up. They, they'd be done to... I'm sure they would love to like. Absolutely. Oh, and absolutely. I saw you at a wedding wearing the, <laughs> and you showed up to the wedding wearing the Kaepernick jersey. And I was like, oh my goodness. I remember that. Hell yes. And and it took me, uh, we knew each other for a couple of years before I realized you were in law school. So you became a lawyer. Where did you go to law school? And when? why did you go to law school? And what are you doing now? And you know, fill that, fill that blanket. Uh, well, um, so I, I, I went to under, I got my bachelor's at Loyola university over in Rogers park, um, on the North side. And I kind of grew up, I mean, my mom was the, of the accord where it was like growing up, you needed, it's, you're either a doctor or a lawyer. I came here and you're going <laughs> to, you're going to be a, you're going to, you're going to, that's success and you, you need to make it happen. So it was basically like as soon as my social science, my uh, social studies papers got were a better better grades than my math and science, it was like all right, I guess I'm going to be a lawyer. So I think from a young age, it was always kind of that was the trajectory and kind of imposed on me for a second. Um, That's the way moms are. That's the way moms are. They're supposed to be that way. Yeah. Right. So after I um, after undergrad. You know, I, through that process, I was living in the city and really dipping my toes and being exposed to radical kind of movement work that was happening in the city. Um, it was during my time around like 2013, 2014, when I got connected with a, this dope group called We Charge Genocide. And mm -hmm. that collective was working essentially on shining a light on the abusive messed up violence of the Chicago Police Department. Um, and so where law school plugs in is, you know, after I graduated, I spent a couple of years just just doing kind of um, grass, kind of grassroots work with recharge genocide, trying to focusing on like cop Chicago, like cop watching work and street know your rights and that kind of stuff. Um, and in that process, you know, we were, I, I helped out with the reparations, Chicago reparations campaign. And in that campaign, I kind of was connected and witnessed, um, quote, you know, movement lawyering uh, in practice. So I would see, you know, a couple 
great lawyers like Joey Mogul, um, how they were offering their skill set to support grassroots mm-hmm. movements. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, there is a possible trajectory to make that skill set useful. Yeah, there, there's a way to be a lawyer and still be a human being. Right. Um, yeah. And so actually, so after a couple of years of just, you know, doing like grassroots work, I was actually about to move to Vietnam because I've been trying to move to Vietnam for a long time. Um, and I got a, I got accepted into Chicago Kent College of Law. Wow. And I got a, a deal there that I couldn't pass up. That's great. I want to come back to that. But you said your mom came here. She came from Vietnam. Yeah. And, 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 and why have you been wanting to go back there to live? Why? Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, for a long time, I've, I've, I've really just wanted to explore and develop a mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. with the land of um, the place called Vietnam. I grew up hearing lots of stories, you know, of my mom's experience there, which was very much a traumatic experience, given that she lived through, she was a young person growing through the U.S.-American war in Vietnam. And, but also I've had had the opportunity to do smaller visits and I just love, love everything about Vietnamese culture and Vietnam. So I, I just want to go and I don't, I don't even have extended family there anymore, but I, I want to go. I just need to go. You got to go. You got to go. You know, Vietnam so much uh, shaped my life and Bernadine's life. And we'd never been there. So we only had a romantic picture in our minds. But for us, because we fought against the American war for 10 years, we felt ourselves to be the other veterans of the American war in Vietnam, not the ones who fought the Vietnamese, but the ones who fought on the side of the Vietnamese. We really had to get there. We got there in 2001, um, 2000, 2001. And, you know, our romantic fantasies, of course, had to come down to earth. But when they came down to earth, we loved the place. We loved everything about it, the culture, the people. Uh, we just were welcomed. It was, And when people realized that we'd come from the other side of the American, they were very welcoming to all Americans. But when they realized that we were on that side, they, I mean, they embraced us in such a warm, hospitable way. It blew our minds. We really, really loved it. Um, yeah, Bernadine had, a, Bernadine had met a woman when she went to, as a leader of the student movement, she was in um, Europe meeting with the Vietnamese. And the translator um, was a woman named Madame Van. And she was a, a, an official in the, in the Communist Party. And when we got there now, 35, 40 years later, we were tracking down Madame Van. We finally met up with her, and she showed up at a meeting with us, bringing newspaper clippings from Vietnamese newspapers with Bernadine's pictures in them. I mean, it was uh, it, it was astonishing, you know, because because you realize, you know, we think we're just some marginal anti-war activists doing our marginal work and shit, but you realize that it actually has an international implication that is staggering, and you realize. Choosing to be on the side of the people of the world actually has meaning to the people of the world. I mean, you know, it may be it may be crossed out here, but not there, not there. That's why Norman Morrison in Vietnam is a national hero. In the United States, people hardly know who he is, and he's the protester who set himself on fire 
on the steps of the Pentagon. And there are schools named after him and, you know, things like that. And, you know, it's just un- unimaginable. Anyway, uh, I'm supporting you. I want you to get back there. Yeah. I want to I wanna follow up on that because, you know, I was recently having a conversation with a scholar. The, he's, a, he's a professor of, I think, international relations or political science at Ohio State. Um, and he was, we were just meeting each other. I was talking about centers and uh, internationalism. And, you know, he looks at me, he's like, you know, there was a civil war that happened in the U.S. that people don't talk about. And I was telling my Vietnamese background and, and he's like, you know, and much of that was, you know, hinged and was because of the, the, the Viet Cong and, and the Viet Minh and the war that there was actually, that's inspired and sparked civil war and talked about it in that way interesting yeah wow powerful i mean i think i think it's important to see it in that way because what you say i think i think we're in the in the early stages of a civil war right now civil war in the united states right now but i think it's important that people say you know there was the revolution against england then there was the second american revolution which was the civil war that abolished formal slavery. Then there was a civil rights movement, a third civil war. There was the anti-war, the most the most widespread, massive, popular anti-war movement in history. That was a civil war. So, you know, we're we're in another civil war and what we have to be we have to be able to name it and understand it as a an insurgency by white supremacists who are organized and armed in a way that has not been true uh, in the recent past. So anyway, I think that's a neat way of framing it that, that your your colleague friend did. Um, I want to go back to Kent Law School because then I, you were over to our house for dinner and um, and you said casually, I don't think I'll take the bar. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> you remember that? And, we, and Bernard said, take the damn bar. So you did take the bar, right? I took the bar and I passed. However, I still haven't passed the character and fitness part. <laughs> really? Well, you know, Bernadine never passed the character and fitness part. Did you know that? Oh, okay. Yeah, she she took the bar exam, I think, 20 years out of law school and passed. And then she was rejected and appealed and was rejected by the character and fitness committee. And finally, instead of feeling disappointed, I said to her, put that at the top of your resume. This group of gangsters won't let you in their club. Good, good for you. You know, you must be doing something right. But she's been able to be a law professor and do a lot of other things that, and use those those skills, as you say. Um, I, I want to go back, though, because I think that one of the things I'd like you to talk about um, PNAP eventually, but let's talk about the dissenters for a bit, because I think there's something inspiring and inspired. And maybe you tell us a bit the story of how you and a group of colleagues, comrades, friends, partners figured out that you wanted to start an anti-war presence spinning out of this current moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it really, it really came together, you know, in the context of, um, I think somebody who really shepherded the idea initially was Biel Yoon, who you're very familiar with. Yes. The moment where Trump was escalating tensions with North Korea. Um, and so Biel's background has, she's done a lot of work um, with radical Korean diaspora and um, work with radical Koreans on the, on the Korean peninsula to end the war, the ongoing war in Korea and fighting for reunification of the peninsula. 
Um, and as I'm sure you know, there's a massive U.S. military presence in South and the southern um, southern portion of Korea, um, so-called South Korea. And the she's done a lot of work in that context, and so that was one of the kind of underlying uh, background context of what kind of was uh, one of the driving forces, but also um, a crew of of us organizers from different places um, and different backgrounds. Like my, I, I come out of and was politicized and developed under like a prison abolitionist, prison industrial complex abolitionist lens. And that definitely situates where I'm, I'm positioned and trying to mobilize in terms of my targets and other organizers, you know, kind of, we all got together around this question of war and internationalism um, and militarism and felt that, you know, there wasn't a space for ones developing and supporting, you know, black indigenous and POC leadership just generally, but also specifically around, you know, dialogue, discourse and act, direct act, political action around anti, you know, ending US militarism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, and there's definitely, obviously there's a historic and, and lineage of an anti-war movement that's present, but we felt that there could be more, there, that there was one, there was an opportunity in, in the movement left spaces around trying to carve out more of a space to support BIPOC, youth, young BIPOC leadership to, to push on, on that lens and uh, in an international lens and make the connections that were kind of implicit in many of our work from local abolitionist work, mm -hmm. try to connect those ties to, you know, global systems and empire um, and, and really make those connections. So, so make those connections for a minute. I amplify that. The, the connections between a militarized, violent police presence at home and a violent, militarized world. Make, make that connection for us. Tell us how you think about it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this, we talk about this a lot in the centers, um, the domestic and international connections, right? So I think tangibly, it really, the connection became clear to me when I was actually doing work with Chicago Torture Justice Memorials campaign and learned of the horrific um, torture led by Chicago Police Commander John Burge and was learning how these Chicago police were torturing systematically poor black and brown folks indiscriminately in the city of Chicago. And in supporting uh, mobilizations for reparations for those torture survivors, I learned about how some of these torture tactics to the even the the strategies and to like these messed up electrocution boxes and a lot of the things that they were doing were actually learned by uh, that many these police officers were vietnam war veterans and they were they had learned these torture tactics and practiced them on folks in vietnam and i think that was just a very clear um connection in terms of like literally death making skills and strategies used by you know settler colonial um police forces you know here and abroad and the the deadly exchange between those those forces right. but i also think you know and there's there's plenty of examples too right of like the 1033 program that folks often talk about how you know federal government use will give u.s military surplus resources to local police 
um, local police departments across the city, right? So there's the material tangible connection mm-hmm. in terms of the exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, well, also just more broadly, I think it's in the, the, the domestic international, it, it's not so much a divide, but I think what dissenters is trying to do is, is challenge the idea of there being a divide, um, you know, in so far as even thinking about the rise of far right and fascist, you know, authoritarian governments around the world, um, you know, from Brazil, to Israel and then to US, which we can make the, the material and money contract, you know, connections, mm-hmm. but it's also mm-hmm. um, uh, policing globally, right? And um, is not just US militarism, but also policing um, regimes uh, are, are increasing all over the world to, to quell um, rising disparities in wealth and, and survival. Mm-hmm survival mm-hmm. needs that are you know happening all around the world and this all you know we and the connection really comes down to you know global capital right and these corporations that are you know profiting off of just the ongoing divestment of communities all around the world and 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 you know taking and ongoing colonial violence against indigenous communities all around the world um but again, I do, I do always, I think it's important too to make the point for me doing prison solidarity work that, you know, you see the prison, there's literally an emerging, uh, growing prison system in Iraq. If you look at the, um, the prison infrastructure since the Iraq war was started, it's literally exponential. You can see the, the prison populations um, just skyrocketing, right? So we're literally in you know, U.S. empire and war is also exporting in that way, exporting the extremely settler colonial and anti-Black violence and AKA prison industrial complex that we know and understand here in the U.S. abroad also. Yeah, yeah, connections. Wow, I mean, the connections are everywhere. The, the, the question of immigration, the way it's talked about in this country is so anemic. I mean, it's also about war. I mean, you want to know who the next wave of immigrants is to be the United States. It's wherever the United States put down its military boot. I mean, it's so obvious, right? But making those connections is critical. And you all began to develop some really smart and thoughtful materials. And then you found some resonance when you put out the call to activists and organizers in your networks nationally, you found a lot of resonance, right? I mean, what did people do? People came to Chicago and you began to have some meetings and so on? Yeah, yeah, so we, I mean, we kicked off January, 2020. And basically what we did is we, you know, paid for offers, full scholarships to basically subsidize to get dope, rad, young, um, black, indigenous and people of color activists from around the country to fly to Chicago, did a multi-day training where we kind of did a download and workshop the kind of frameworks and strategies and ideas that we had been, that initial core group had been developing over about basically a year and a half. Um, and folks were vibing with it and then went out to go back and start chapters at, in different places around the country. And, you know, now we got, to, we're to a place where we have a great powerful like organizing team there's national committees working from like storytelling committee that's focused on like arts and prop propaganda around our our, our political points of unity and 
and you know dabbling in different form, different local campaigns from targeting weapons manufacturers to getting cops off campus and really trying to target you know iterations of militarism as they show up in um most most tangibly and um based on folks local chapters and, and yeah it's so it's so amazing i mean people don't want to think this way but what you you know illuminate is that we live in the midst of a war culture we are a culture of war and the culture of violence it's not simply this bad act or that weird act or this production or that production it really is a culture and what i love about the dissenters is how both you know brilliant it was to kind of say we need to focus on war and militarism as a as a key kind of focus of our political work, but then to see the ways in which you can take action against it on so many levels simultaneously. Very, very important work, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, I I, want to emphasize the fact that it's also, it's really been about cultivating and supporting emerging uh, Black, Indigenous, and POC youth leadership, because in a, in a real way, in a real way that, um, because I mean, because the now at least my where where we a lot of us in the center stand, things don't look good. Right. <laughs> you know, the U.S. Empire is in a, in a particular moment. You know, um, and with the largest military in the world, and um, you know, military bases all over the world and and with you know rise of insurgent far-right forces within the heart of empire while we're also dealing with you know the constant divestment of of you know and and state violence at home you know we're up against a lot so yeah i would add i would add to that litany that depressing litany and then i'm going to move on to something positive which is y'all fighting back. But I would add to that the the Cold War with China that's being ratcheted up. And it's so it's so obvious when you see it coming, having lived through the last Cold War, which, by the way, was hot war after hot war after hot war. And that's important. But then these the Cold War with China and important to also remember that that uh, sanctions kills more people than bombs. And so sanctions against Cuba, sanctions against Iran, sanctions against, um, you know, Nicaragua. This is killing people at a rapid rate. So got to add that in. And I think the other thing I would just add in, because it pisses me off, is that when the media talks about getting out of Afghanistan, first, we're not exactly getting out because we have drones and air power and all the rest of it. But secondly, they keep saying it's the longest war in American history. Did they forget Korea? Did they forget that we're still at war in Korea? Did they forget that we're still at war in Cuba? I mean, these things don't end. These And they never end well. But, but they don't even end. I mean, because imperialism never means its withdrawals. It sometimes pulls back, but it never means it. And that means we have to be on our toes all the time. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the what you what you call the cold war emerging cold war with china that's an interesting you know we're we're um yeah i'm wondering if you could say more about how what you think about what that means for how you know anti-war anti-militarist formations within the u.s need to be 
thinking? Well, I think, you know, I think having played, played a role in the largest anti-war movement ever mobilized in this country, the thing that, that we knew then and that we, we have learned year after year, decade after decade since, is that the, 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 the need to oppose war is primary. It's important. It's like war and white supremacy. These are the twin evils that we have to combat at every turn. And they will find new ways of, 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 of presenting themselves. And so right now what we're witnessing is the United States trying to organize all of Europe, all of the capitalist countries, the entire imperial um, realm into isolating China. And why? Because China is rising as an economic com com competitor um, on the world stage. And so if you, you mentioned that there are military bases scattered all over the world, you take a close look and you realize that there are 800, you know, or a thousand military presences all over the world. And if you look closely, you see them encircling China. And you see them trying very hard to, um, you know, not necessarily provoke a hot war, but there will be hot wars um, with China. And and these are unwinnable. You know, the, the idea that you can kind of invade a country or or go to war in a way that you're you're going to kind of get out of it uh, as a victor, an imperial victor, is nuts. And so we're seeing now the United States leaving Afghanistan. And, you know, it's um, it's more torn up, more destroyed, more victimized than it was before before the U.S. got there. So I think that the Cold War with China is one part of a, of a larger puzzle, but it's one that we have to be conscious of. We have to be conscious of all of these things simultaneously. Yeah, I think I appreciate that analysis. Um, so thanks so much for that, Bill. I guess I'm also something that we're trying to figure out, too, for grassroots, you know, movements and and bottom bottom up power building you know um what does that mean for the call you know what is the what because i think what we're thinking about is how do we build transnational mm -hmm. solidarity and and class class solidarity class struggle uh transnational class solidarity and um and also not make the mistake of um yeah not lose sight of the pitfalls of what it means to then well you know you you go back to when, when i was first involved in opposing the war against vietnam and you realize that the draft we 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 opposed the military draft the selective service i was first arrested tearing up a selective service office that's what we did but the problem of course that we had to anticipate is they'll get rid of the draft at some point and the, and they'll realize that the most untrustworthy aspect or part of an imperial army is the imperial soldiers themselves i mean you know when the soldiers themselves won't fight which happened in Vietnam to a large degree. If they won't fight, you're screwed. And so they were projecting forward. And there was, you know, all kind of projections happened in 1975 when the U.S. was beaten and, and ran out of, out of Vietnam. I mean, one was they wrote a, a report in the Pentagon said, we must never have a free press on a battlefield on an American battlefield, and they never have since. You know, so it, it's fascinating to see 
what they're, the lessons they drew from Vietnam is don't let the people know what's going on and take away that particular pain of a universal draft. Take that pain away. Don't let people know what's going on. Give them food to eat, you know, and hopefully you put them to sleep. And that's the danger. That's one of the dangers we have. So one of the things I appreciate about dissenters is not only going after the young, but going after the points at which um, militarism is expressing itself in their communities, whether, you know, a city or a campus or whatever. But maybe say a little bit about the, the things you've developed. I, I should say also, you're no long, you were a founder of dissenters, you're still on the board, but you do have a group of young leaders who are, who are leading the effort now. But how do people get a hold of the materials? How do they f- connect with dissenters? Yeah, yeah. Well, first stop would be our website, right? We are dissenters. We are dissenters.org. W-E-A-R-E-D-I-S-S-E-N-T-E-R-S. You challenged my spelling ability, but I think I got it. You got it. And you can, there's a subscribe there um, where you can get email updates, but it's also tied to a form. So like, say you're interested in getting an uh, next update when we do say one of our mass trainings where we, you know, bring in, try to off share out skills and grassroots um, organizing skills and also connect folks with the ongoing campaigns and or plug folks into local chapters. That's how you would um, um, hear about it and or following us on social media because um, we post about um, trainings and, you know, whether it's direct action training or grassroots campaigning 101 or um, learning, through, walking through our points of unity and principles and um, that kind of stuff. You can also, well, it gets posted on our social media, which is also um, at We Are Dissenters, um, both on Instagram and Twitter. And you can download that video that you made from uh, Dissenters or you can see it. So this is a video that blew me away when it first came out. And you mentioned your partner, Biel Yun. She wrote a lot of it, but it's really beautifully produced. And it really makes, I think, a very coherent political argument in just a few minutes about why anti-war is part of the larger, a really critical part of a larger social justice effort. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can find that on our social media. Or I would direct folks to Instagram to, in particular to find okay. that video out there. Okay. But yeah, that story was, that, that, that video really, um, the points that it makes are also outlined in our, um, on our website. I think it's on our, our story or our vision page, right? Um, and really what that is, is a, we weave together um, kind of our analysis and the perspectives that inform our analysis and um, what we're trying to do. So I think it gives us a succinct. I mean, your analysis, you, Timmy, in all the work you do, um, you have a commitment to nonviolent approaches, but you also have a methodology, as you said in the beginning, it's, it comes out of a lens of an abolitionist lens, but it incorporates restorative justice, transformative justice. Those are the things that kind of guide your work wherever you are, correct? Yes. Yes, um, I wouldn't say that I'm I'm com- I'm committed to restorative justice and transformative justice in, in a very expansive way, um, and I would also not say I'm I am committed to nonviolence in in the way that it's you know uh, in, in a religious way that I think a lot of folks talk about within certain movement spaces, um, and I think 
because the the way that nonviolence and violence that has that even that framework has been used really by the state as a way to defang and demobilize popular movements and um, revolutionary movements. That's something I'm not. That's something else. Um, and I just like to keep that clear. When <laughs> I like it. You, you, you're talking to an old weatherman, so you're gonna gotta want, want to clarify that shit. But but when I say anti-violence, I'm anti-violence, you know. And I it doesn't mean that that I'm willing to give up the you know I, that I that I fall into a certain camp. I'll tell you what I think the big danger of the narrative of nonviolence is is that nonviolence without direct action is meaningless. So you could be sitting on your couch counting your money, and you could say I'm nonviolent. That's that's just bullshit you know i mean when you look at somebody like dorothy day or dave dellinger or martin luther king you're not talking about some passive jerk who's doing nothing you're talking about direct action and if you listen to the words of a dave dellinger or a dorothy day or a martin luther king the words they use are nonviolent direct action they never say i'm nonviolent. i mean they provoke violence and they do it intentionally they want you to see the violence of the state and they sacrifice their own well-being in cases to, to, to make you see it. But they always say nonviolent direct action. They never say nonviolence without direct action, right? I think that's a critical understanding for folks. I agree. And I think what for me, from where I stand and my sense of like, you know, con- my sense of the movement spaces that I've been moving in in the past, you know, decade, um, or the past years um, is that while that the nonviolent direct action, everything you said is correct. I think in my experience, um, this idea of nonviolence and uh, uh, like a, almost like a religious pacifism is very much still, it's being used by non, like it's very common in the nonprofit sector Absolutely. in a way that is, you know, strategic by it has a what I like to say is that it that nonviolence, not 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 nonviolent direct action, but uh, a religious nonviolence has a monopoly on how so much of much of the like institutionalized left um, kind of has a monopoly on on what folks think of the methods of for social change needs to look like. And as soon as you're talking about institutionally to the chunks of the institutional left like that are religiously committed to this idea what does that mean is that we're no longer talking about building a revolutionary movement if that's if that's what we're talking about um yeah i i see what you're saying and i i guess i i think a couple things when i hear um a president of the united states or a senator say well i'll accept it if it's nonviolent." i want to scream or jump off a bridge or something because they're the mo- they're violent embodied right i mean if you're the president of the united states you're sitting on the throne of empire deploying your violent legions and you're telling the protesters in washington be nonviolent. that's obscene on the other hand i'll i'll uh, have a, a little nitpick with you which is people like dave dellinger dorothy day martin luther king they were religiously nonviolent, but they were nonviolent direct action and if you look at king you know he was he he was somebody who understood deeply that violence was in the nature of the united states it was in the nature of slavery and jim crow and you know 
white supremacy. It's in, it's in its nature. So he was trying to expose it and oppose it and risk everything. But I hear what you're saying, but I want to make a distinction and say, um, when the violent when the violent ones tell us to be nonviolent, you can kind of turn the other way. Um, I'm all for people mobilizing their entire church to get out there and stop the cops. You know, I think that'd be great. It, you know, and if they can do that, that's great. But when we're talking about you know, moral budgeting in Chicago or ethical budgeting in the United States. We're talking about chopping off the violent arms of these institutions, right? Yeah. We don't want a third or a half of our budget in Chicago to go to the cops. We don't want a half of our taxes to the federal government go to the, you know, imperial projects. You know, it, it, and we have to get that clear. We have to make that really clear. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of um some some of the conversations that I, I i see happening especially in the wake of the george floyd rebellions and uprisings is that um in the way that i see this 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 question around armed struggle and nonviolent violent play out is i think you see you know some subsections of the left who see who understand the moment of the, the rebellions that some of the largest rebellions um, that I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely. Me too. Yeah. The most militant and have did the most literally the most material damage to the, the violence embodied to, you know, the third precinct going up in flames. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, we're to a point where folks are talking about are, are, are you know, questioning what the role of the left is, right. You know, and how it's been, the, it's been it's been working class or, or in proletarian black and brown folks who've been leading in that way in terms of the militant direct action against the state absolutely and i think the left has to you know and and not not so much you know after the fact you know like uh, they have to catch we a lot has to catch up <laughs> no i hear what you're saying i think you're absolutely right and we have to get more sophisticated about talking what uh, talking about what violence is for example a slave owner stepping on the neck of a slave is you know whether he actually does that or not a, a slave owner owning a slave that's violence that's a violent relationship a child in guatemala dying of pneumonia quietly that's a violent relationship it didn't have to happen it happened because of empire so we have to get more sophisticated about saying when the person just throws a punch that's not the only moment of violence there's violence there's violence upon violence which leads to that moment and i think we have to be smart about that yeah and i guess that also makes it just makes me think about how it also that for better or for worse also can we can have a more expansive understanding of what resistance means. Absolutely. And so I appreciate that kind of absolutely, uh, you know, violent relationships and yeah, um, what is like, what are like abundant, emergent, decentralized, revolutionary relation, relationality. What does that look like in all its different forms? Right. Listen, I want to pivot because we don't have a lot of time left. I want you to explain to folks what PNAP is. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with you, but you're leading that effort. And maybe you'd say a word about PNAP. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so um, like you said, you're in show, I'm managing director of the Prison and Neighborhood Arts and Education Project, which um, has been in existence for a decade now, but essentially it's a crew of us folks um, and we, we, the organization itself, what we do is we set up, we provide um, rad abolitionist uh, oriented arts uh, education and programming inside Stateville Maximum Security Men's Facility. Um, and yeah, uh, we, we essentially were a community of inside and outside scholars, academics, artists, um, trying to chip away and build relationships of reciprocity that can extend beyond um, and in spite of the, the you know, brick and mortar um, borders that separate, um, have been used to separate and isolate communities, in particular incarcerated communities. One of the most inspiring projects, and it's got a lot of wings to it, but um, I've been to several art installations that have been co-produced by people inside prisons and people outside. I've been fortunate enough to teach in the program, and uh, as is typical of most good teaching I've ever done, learn more from my students than I possibly could give them. But you know, you go in with these stereotypes about what people are like and you take one step into their lived experience and it's uh, eye-opening and life-changing. So I really appreciate what you're doing to me and also what that organization has accomplished in 10 years. It's kind of staggering. What's the future for the organization? What are you, where are you all headed? Um, I mean, we really believe in um, depth versus breadth. And what that, I think, means is We've, we've been, uh, a lot of our, you know, co-directors from Sarah Ross, Damon Locks, Erica Miners, Tim, Timothy Barnett, Alice Kim. Um, you know, we've built a lot, many really rad and important, beautiful relationships with men at Stateville. And uh, why Stateville is an important place or a horrifically important place is that folks, um, most of the folks at Stateville, most of the men at Stateville are facing long-term sentences, um, like life without parole sentences. Um, and, you know, we're really committed to, we're really committed to these folks. And I think what that means is we're going to try to continue to provide and facilitate, you know, um, radical pedagogical relationships that can do producing, you know, uh, a culture, an abolitionist culture, um, culture work that can, you know, hopefully, you know, chip away at um, the, uh, you know, some, not just the, so, I mean, yeah, let me say, you know, we're building relationships between our scholars and academics, but we're also, um, the, a lot of the knowledge production that's produced and the culture and art, that is also um, a form of, you know, uh, cultural and 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 propaganda that we that can chip away at a lot of the underlying truths that kind of the state uses to weaponizes to justify its existence and justify these horrific kind of conditions um, that folks are facing yeah you know we live in this kind of instantaneous uh culture everything has to happen right now so people say revolution um and if it doesn't happen next month it's like well what the hell happened but what i like about you know, your approach and what, what people have done. And if you take the long view, you mentioned reparations right in the beginning. 
but you know, nobody would have guessed 25 years ago that Illinois would lead the nation in abolishing the death penalty. But we did. How did we do it? Insider, outsider relationships, organizing, activism, journalists involved, truth-telling involved, lawyers involved. But we did it. And, and we had the death row 10, and then we had reparations that we won against John Burge and so on. You were all a part of all that. So this is something that people have to kind of I don't know, uh, buckle down and, and get get ready for both the urgency of the movement and also uh, the long haul of the movement. It's both are true. You have to keep both in mind. So so in, going back to PNAP, how could people get a hold of you? How, uh, how could people find out what's going on with PNAP and get involved? Um, well, one, you can check out, you know, our the PNAP website. So it's p-nap.org. Um, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Um, and, you know, we were ongoingly trying to curate events in the free world um, to connect folks with um, some of the amazing work that's happening. Um, and so that's how you can get updates. And, you know, we're also, um, if you're a, a, a professor and, or artist that, and you're interested in potentially trying to connect with some of the programs that we're building, building out, um, feel free to hit us up on um, the, our contact info that's on, also on our website. And I think Great. that's contactpeanut at gmail.com. Great. Uh, let me ask you two other quick questions. What are you reading? Huh. Um, well, one book that I finished recently that I, I loved, I absolutely loved, um, is called a book. It's a book called Here at the Center of, of the World in Revolt. Um, and it was... It's, it, it was recommended to me by a friend, um, Peter Geraldelus. Um, he also wrote, how non, he wrote a couple of other books, one called uh, How Nonviolence Protects the State um, and uh, among others, but it's a very comprehensive um, recent book kind of from a, uh, I would say that kind of bridges different theoretical political milieus, but definitely um, speaks to an insurrectionary, um, internationalist kind of lens that I just, at the same time, gives a great kind of theory of history and analysis of where we are and where we need to go. And I would, I've been buying extra copies and giving it to friends. So. That's the way to do it. That's what I always do. I'm a fiend for that kind of thing. Have you read Viet Thanh Yen? Not yet, but oh, I've man. been told I need to. You got to read The Sympathizer and also his his nonfiction, but I just finished The Committed, and it blew me away. Last thing I'll say is that um, I told you I was visiting David Gilbert this week up in New York State prisons, and you sent me a reference of an article you'd read of his. I was really impressed that you knew who he was, but... Uh, David is so, I mean, David is so informed. So we're talking, and he wanted to talk about anti-war work. And that was one of the agenda items. We, we saw him for two days. And I started to tell him about the dissenters, and you, and I, and, and Bial, and, I, and Asha. I was telling him the whole story as I understood it. I began. And he said, oh, the dissenters, yeah, I've read their newsletter. I said, what? Yeah, I said, what? I mean, here's a guy who's been locked in prison. He's in Schwangunk prison, some medieval dungeon in the Catskills, been in prison 40 years, and he knows who you are and what you're doing. And I thought, man, I mean, I run into people all the time who've never heard of the dissenters, and I'm like, 
damn, David, you are on it. So next time you get to New York, man, I want you to, I want you to get in touch with me and we'll make a date. He, he has a schedule of who's visiting him, but because a lot of people visit him, but you got to go see him. You, you, you'd learn a lot and he'd learn a lot. So I'm going to recommend that for, for a new relationship. And, and so, so one, one last little question, how do we get free? <laughs> one last little question. I mean, I, oof, I can't, you can't hit me with that at the end. Um, sometimes it seems simple. Sometimes we get, you can get lost in, in the strategy, you know, I think sometimes. And, but on one time, uh, on the other hand, I think it's like, you know, find your folks, really find your people. Um, it's a, it's, uh, for folks who are interested in like making, and this being a lifelong fight, find your folks and, start taking action in the way you can and, and are able. That actually, that actually is great advice. And uh, I know it was a big question. I kind of meant it for to be kind of, to get you to laugh, but you know, you, first you laughed and then you gave me actually a straight up answer. And I really appreciate that. Timmy, I, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your work. I appreciate what you all are up to. And I will see you back in Chicago. Um, but meanwhile, keep the faith and keep rising. Definitely. Thanks for your, thanks for your time today. All right. Bye-bye. Before we end, we're going to give a quick homework assignment. Do a little research to share with family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, or a person on the bus. Here are the research questions. What is the rank of the U.S. in military spending worldwide? What percentage of the federal budget goes to the military-industrial complex? How much tax money, your money, went to private military contractors last year? How many U.S. military installations are there in foreign countries? How many foreign countries have military installations on U.S. soil? How should we make sense of these facts? Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a pivot toward peace. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. The theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts.